Well, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 10, and we'll be looking at verse 1 tonight. Now, we saw with the seven seals, there is an interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Some people call this a parenthesis, an interruption in the text. It's this reminder that in this present age, we are still waiting for the return of Christ and the coming of our bodily resurrection. Now, in the last intermission, we saw the, uh, the sealing and numbering of the innumerable people of God dressed in white robes. And then Christ breaks the seventh seal and there's silence in heaven for half an hour. And then comes forth the coming of the seven trumpets. However, in this interlude, we see a mighty angel depicted in glorious terms descending from heaven with a little scroll, the sounding of seven thunders, and the eating of this scroll by John. This is then followed by the coming of two witnesses who will be slain and then resurrected after three and a half days. And this will complete the second woe, the sixth trumpet, which then leads to the final trumpet blast and the final woe, beginning in Revelation eleven fifteen. So chapter 10 and 11 is a continuation of the second woe, but it's also an interlude before the final trumpet blast. So tonight we'll focus on this question. Who is this mighty angel? that is described in such glorious terms. So with that, let us turn to Revelation chapter 10, and we will read all of chapter 10 tonight. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I did, when I had eaten, 
and my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, whom have we in heaven but you? And to whom shall we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. Therefore, we now come to your holy scriptures tonight, seeking these words of eternal life. And so we pray you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, a mind to understand, a heart to believe, and your spirit to obey. Guide us with your counsel tonight, O Lord. Amen. Now, we'll look at this in part, but there are a few more verses that we will look at in the coming weeks that will reinforce what we will look at tonight. But with that being said, in verse 10, we're introduced to another vision with this phrase. Then I saw, which is meant to draw our eyes from the events happening on the earth with the four angels and their armies back to what is happening in heaven. So John is looking down on the destruction that is happening on the earth with this army of 200 million soldiers. And then all of a sudden, his vision pans back to heaven and he sees this glorious angel uh, described with these majestic terms. So it says, verse 1, a mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire but we must ask ourselves who is this mighty angel does it matter and why is he described with such glorious language it's an interesting question because the two main commentaries that uh, i've been using and referencing in this bible study disagree with one another on the interpretation of this passage so tonight, I just want to give you both. First, I'll give you Tom Schreiner, who argues, and I would say wrongly, that this is not Jesus, but only another angel. And I believe his argument, argument for that position is actually sound. Just disagree with it. However, J.K. Beale argues that this angel is, in fact, Jesus. And I believe Beale's interpretation to be right and more biblically faithful to the interpretation. So tonight, I'll just quote Schreiner's argument, and then I'll expound upon Beale's argument and add to it as we go on. This is why we're only looking at one verse tonight, because I had already written five pages on verse one. So with that, here's Schreiner's quote. Quote, John sees another angel, just as he earlier saw a mighty angel asking who was worthy to open the scroll with the seven seals. The angel here descends from heaven, just as others do later in the book. The angel is described in glorious terms. He is wrapped in a cloud, which often denotes God's presence, and thus is an emissary of the Lord. The rainbow over his head also signifies God's presence and authority. The angel's face shines with the sun, just as Jesus' face shone with the glory of God. His feet are pillars of fire, while Jesus were burnished bronze. Since the angel is described in such glorious terms, we might think he is Jesus himself. For the word angel means messenger. And Jesus could be God's messenger. Despite the attractiveness of this view, it should be rejected for the following reasons. First, Jesus is never called an angel in Revelation. 
And in fact, the worship of God and Jesus is clearly distinguished from the worship of an angel. Second, an angel may be described in glorious terms, some of which are true also of God, and yet be distinct from him. Third, the angel swears by God, suggesting that he himself is not divine. Fourth, the reference to another mighty angel points back to the same expression where an angel is clearly in view. I just realized that I left one of those out that I want to, real quick, because I'll forget. <laughs> so where it says that the angel swears by God, suggesting that he himself is divine, I, I think that's wrong. Because God swears by himself because there's nothing higher than God. So to say that God can't swear by himself proves that, he, that this angel is not divine doesn't make sense. God swears by himself because there's nothing higher that he can swear on. I'll give you a reference to that uh, next week when I can think about the reference. So sadly, that was the end of the quote. Sadly, I think this lacks a human hermeneutical touch that considers the whole Bible. He has several references listed here, probably 20 or so. And yet, he is so focused on this one book, Revelation, that how Revelation fits into the rest of the book he overlooks, or the rest of the Bible he overlooks. And this is a common critique of what is called New Covenant Theology or Progressive Covenantal Theology. What actually ends up happening is some of these New Testament scholars become so hyper-focused on particular books of the Bible that they neglect a proper hermeneutical approach. For example, he says, this can't refer to Jesus because nowhere else in the book of Revelation refers to Jesus as an angel. And that may be true unless this passage is, you know, referencing to Jesus, then it is referencing to Jesus as an angel. But he becomes so hyper-focused on that that he forgets that throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament, God often refers to himself as an angel, an angel of the Lord. Therefore, Beale provides an alternative interpretation, one that contrasts. He says, it is Jesus. So he considers the book of Revelation in light of all of Scripture, which is important when we consider Revelation. There's roughly 400 verses and 500 allusions or references to Old Testament passages. So if that's the case, then we have to consider how all of Scripture references God and how it references Jesus. So for the rest of the sermon, I'll just be using his interpretation as an outline and then adding my own commentary to his points. So first, John sees another mighty angel coming down from heaven. This is first a connection back to Revelation 5.2 where John saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to come and take the scroll and open its seals? So this mighty angel is declaring this and giving way to Jesus coming and taking the scroll and opening its seals. Therefore, John is making a connection between chapter 5 and chapter 10, and they are connected in this significant way. But notice that it says here in 10.1 that it's another mighty angel and not the same mighty angel in 5.2. And this is further made clear as the mighty angel is given 
divine attributes applicable only in Revelation to the one who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb, i.e., God the Father and God the Son. So these attributes that he is about to describe, we only see in the book of Revelation attributed to God. And you expand that out, only attributed to the Ancient of Days, God who sits upon his throne. There's only one other time in Scripture where it's attributed to someone other than God, and that happens to be the Son of Man, who is the Son of God, who is God incarnate. So two important questions to answer then. First, what is an angel? Secondly, is Yahweh ever referred to as an angel in the Old Testament? And I would actually qualify that even more. Does Yahweh ever refer to himself as an angel in the Old Testament? Well, the word angel in Greek and in Hebrew just means this, messenger. A messenger of God, one who brings a message. So think uh, Luke 1 and Luke 2. Gabriel comes and he brings a message to Zechariah, comes and brings a message to Mary, comes and brings a message to the shepherds out in the field. They come and bear good news. So angel just means messenger. This is why there's disagreement about what angel means in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation, which, you know, I go back and forth on if it's referring to pastors who are messengers of God because they expound on the message of God or if it's referring to literal angelic beings. Both are messengers of God. So question that we must ask is, is Jesus a messenger of God? Well, yes, he is the ultimate messenger of God. He is the greater Moses. He is the one who speaks for God. In John 1, 1, he's defined, or he is um, identified as the divine logos, the divine word or the divine messenger of God. Later on in John 1, 17 and 18, it says, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten Son, or the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So what is Jesus' goal? John 1.18 tells us Jesus has come to make the Father known. Because no one has ever seen him, but Jesus has been in face-to-face relationship with him. He is at the Father's side. So the one who knows the Father intimately has come to make the Father known. So how does he do that? As the divine logos, the divine word, the divine message. This is later displayed in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. beginning in verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you. What has Jesus come to do? To make the Father known. So this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God. And Jesus. Whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What is that work? To make the Father known. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That goes back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So is Jesus a messenger? Yes. He is the divine messenger. He's the divine logos. He is the one who can make the Father known. He's the greater Moses. Moses said to God, let me see your glory. God says, can't do that. You'll die. But I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand. And when I pass by, I will remove my hand and declare my name, Yahweh, Yahweh, and you may see my backside. For my glory you cannot see. But Jesus has seen the Father's glory, and he has made the Father known. This is why he's the greater Moses, the greater messenger. We can go on in John 17, verses 13 and 14. Jesus continues in this prayer. He says, but I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may, ha they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given, given them your word. So again, notice there. He's the divine logos. He is the divine message bearer. He comes and bears the message that the Father has given him that we may have eternal life. So, question. Is Jesus an angel, a messenger? Now, you got to distinguish here. People hear angel and they think angelic being. Angel being used here is divine messenger. Jesus is a divine messenger as the eternal son. He is the messenger of God the Father. Now, secondly, is Yahweh ever referred to as an angel in the Old Testament? Yes, on several occasions. The title of angel of Yahweh is used to refer to Yahweh himself. There are probably about 12 different places we could go. Let me point you to one where he refers to himself as the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord. And then let me point you to a place where there's an angelic being not referred to as the angel of the Lord, but the commander of the armies of Yahweh. First, it's the well-known one in Exodus 3, verses 2 through 6 with Moses. And it says this, and the angel of Yahweh. So notice, angel of Yahweh, but pay attention to how this phraseology then plays out throughout the rest of the verse. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see. God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. So notice there, angel of the Lord appears in a burning bush. Moses comes and sees, and who calls out? Yahweh. 
And then you can go on and Yahweh speaking, tell me your name. And he reveals his divine name to him. Yahweh, I am that I am. Verse 5, do not come near. Take off your sandals off your feet for this place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So notice, Yahweh is referred to as the messenger of the Lord in this, what is called a theophany, a Old Testament appearance of God through created media, the burning bush that's not concerned, uh, consumed. And he is the one interacting with Moses. Notice, Moses covers his face because he's afraid to look upon God. Although this whole thing tells us that Moses doesn't understand the Old Testament worship. He has a basic understanding, but then he always messes it up. They, you see this throughout Exodus until he's trained. The other place that we can go is in Joshua 5, 13 and 15. As Israel is about to enter into the land of Canaan and conquer it before they go to battle with Jericho. Actually, I believe they've already crossed over. They're in the land about to go to battle with Jericho. Now, this doesn't refer to him as an angel, but the imagery is similar, and the language here is similar. It says, verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and said to him, Are you for us, or are you for our adversaries? So notice what he's seeing here. He's seeing a man, and the sword is drawn, meaning he's in an attacking position. And all Joshua can say to him, I don't know who you are. You're not one of us. Are you for us, or are you against us? And listen to how he responds. No. No, I'm not. Not for you, not for your adversaries. But I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. Now in here is this littered with the, the name of God. But, and here's what happens. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy and Joshua did so. Now, here's why I chose those two. You see similar language between Moses' interaction with, his, with God and Joshua's interaction with God. What does God say to both of them? Take off your sandals, for this ground is holy. Now, here's what's important. Joshua falls to the ground and worships the commander of Yahweh's army. And what does the commander do? He accepts the worship. If it was not God, then the angel would not accept worship. But rather, it is God himself who is standing before Joshua via created media. It's a theophany. It's a Christophany. Christ is appearing here to Joshua. The commander himself is Yahweh, and he comes to bring a message to Joshua. He says, what does my Lord say to his servant? And how do we know that it's Yahweh and not one of his angelic beings? Again, 
Joshua worships him, and he accepts the worship. We will see something similar at the end of Revelation, in Revelation 22, 8 and 9. It says this, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and I heard and saw them, and I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of his book. Worship God. Translation, don't do that. You're going to get us both in trouble. You know that you're not supposed to worship me. We together worship God. So here's the difference. Does, it, does the being accept worship or does it point you to worship God? In the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord appeared, he would accept worship. The ground is holy. Why? Because Yahweh is holy and he's present on that ground. So, question. Is Jesus a messenger? Yes. Does God ever refer to himself as an angel? Yes. So, while Revelation may not refer to Jesus directly as an angel, this is not outside the bounds of biblical interpretation to see Jesus here. In fact, I'm saying that it is referring to Jesus as an angel because I think this angel is him. Now, secondly, the language used to describe the angel describes divine attributes only applicable to God. And then later verses are only applicable to Jesus. In the Old Testament, God alone is the one who comes on clouds, especially in the day of the Lord, in the day of vengeance, in the day of trouble, in that final coming of the Lord. We saw this in Nahum 1.3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now, this is Nahum's imagery of God coming on that final judgment, walking on clouds. We see this in Luke and uh, Acts. Um, Jesus ascends to heaven, and the clouds disappear. And then there's angels that appear, and they say, why are you looking into the heavens? He will return in the same way that he is gone. Meaning, he will come on the clouds, which is this apocalyptic language of the return of Christ coming on the clouds with power. So it only in the Old Testament refers to Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who is covered or comes on the clouds. Except in one place in the Old Testament where another is described as coming on the clouds. The Son of Man. So in Daniel 7, 13, he says, I saw the vision in the night, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And we know who this son of man is. It's Jesus. And we have already seen this vision in Revelation 5 when Jesus comes before his father to take the scroll. It's the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days and taking the scroll. What Daniel saw, John sees. But what Daniel was seeing was concealed in the Old Testament. He doesn't have the revelation to tell us what he's seeing. He sees one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. John comes along and says, it's Jesus. 
And he's coming to the one who sits upon the throne, who's his father, and he's taking the scroll from his hand. You see, he has further revelation. We understand that what Daniel saw is what John sees. But John has clarity for he knows who the Son of Man is. It's Jesus. And though he comes and he takes. Now, again, this is one of those great texts that is speaking of Jesus' divinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have seen this throughout. The language used of the one who sits on the throne is applied to the very one who comes, to the Son of Man, who is Jesus. So it's this strong Trinitarian text where it's speaking about the divinity of Jesus. Why is he coming on the clouds? Because he himself is Yahweh, with the Father, with the Spirit. Now, in Revelation 1-7, we read, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Who is it speaking of there? Jesus. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. Who is that speaking of? Who is the one coming on the clouds? The one whom they pierced. Who is the one they have pierced? Jesus is the one who they have pierced. That refers back to Zechariah 12.10, where Yahweh is speaking about they will look upon the one whom they pierced. Who is the one they pierced? Yahweh is speaking about himself. But who is pierced? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, is the one who is pierced. Then we read in Revelation 1.13 when we see Jesus identified as like a son of man. See, John begins to pull all of these strings that are found throughout the Old Testament together. They find their answer in the person of Jesus. Later on, we will see Jesus described in Revelation 14, 14. Behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Again, speaking of Jesus. Like the son of man, and he's seated upon the clouds. Now, thirdly, the angel has a rainbow over his head or on his head. Now, who is the rainbow associated with throughout Scripture? God. We first see it in Genesis 9.13 as the sign of God's covenant with creation after the flood, that he will not destroy the world and the flood again. When does what did we see back with the first rider on the white horse, which we said was Jesus? What did he do? He picked up a bow. Same word there, the rainbow. To point his judgment and wrath upon the earth again. Not through a flood, but through fire. But John is also drawing here from Ezekiel's first vision and the appearance of God in Ezekiel 26, 28. Now, a lot of these verses then connect to the rest of what we see here in verse 1. Verse 28 is what we're drawing from here for the rainbow, but the rest of it also fits in. Ezekiel 1, 26. 
and above the expanse over their heads was like was the likeness of a throne an appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance and upward from what had the appearance of his weights i saw as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. The appearance of the bow that was in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So notice there, then, this reality that above him was like gleaming metal. That is, he was shining like the sun. Below his waist was like fire. Verse 1, pillars of fire were his legs. And then verse 28, there appeared the bow, a rainbow, that appears on the day from the clouds of rain, and there was brightness all around him. And then Ezekiel tells us, who is he talking about here? Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. So who's being described here in Revelation 10.1? Ezekiel would say, that's the glory of Yahweh. So I'm going to go with Ezekiel describing it and John drawing upon Ezekiel saying, this is the glory of Yahweh. And I'm going to say, I think it's describing Yahweh. Likewise, we saw back in Revelation 4.3, a rainbow around God's throne. Now here in Revelation 10, this angel has a bow on or above his head, and it's like a crown. Fourthly, the angel's face was like the sun, just like Christ in Revelation 1.16, which says in his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Here we are likewise reminded of Christ's transfiguration, where his face shone like the sun Matthew 17 2 and after six days Jesus took with him Peter James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun the phrase there is the exact same as Matthew 17 2 and his clothes became white as light so notice there the angel's face is shining like the sun. Jesus' face is shining like the sun. God was shining like gleaming metal, which is a euphemism for shining like the sun. Finally, the angel's um, legs are like pillars of fire. This once again points us back to Christ's depiction in Revelation 1.15. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. So burnished bronze is like right when it comes out of the furnace and it's still glowing red. So it looks like pillars of fire is what he says here in 10.1. And what does this language remind us of? God's depiction in the Old Testament, such as in Exodus, where God leads the people of Israel out of Egypt in a pillar of fire and smoke. 
Likewise, we are reminded of God of the God contest in 1 Kings 18, where Elijah goes to war against the prophets of Baal, and only one of them will win. Elijah prays, and what happens? A pillar of fire falls from heaven. It cleans up the bowl, burns up the bowl, burns up the stones, burns up the dust, licks up the water. Pillar of fire. And now here, this angel is being depicted in the same way that Yahweh has depicted himself in the Old Testament through a pillar of fire. Now, let me add a few things here that aren't in my notes. The one that I said earlier that I told you I won't remember. Don't remember it. Um, he has a scroll in his hand that reminds us of God having a scroll and giving it to his son. Now Christ doing likewise, giving it to John. But here's the important one. When Jesus appears in Revelation 5, he is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Verse 4. And when the seven thunders, or sorry, uh, verse 3, sorry. So he's called the Lion of Judah and in verse 3. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion Roaring. Like Orion roaring. All that to say this. I think it becomes quite clear that the angel here is Jesus Christ. John is using language that is used of Yahweh in the Old Testament and now applying it to Jesus. And he comes and he is bringing a message in the form of a little scroll. He'll give it to John. John will take it. He'll eat it. And it will be sweet because the words of God are sweeter than the drippings of honeycombs. And yet it will be bitter because he will prophesy judgments against peoples and nations and languages and kings. And then from there, we will go on to see the two witnesses. And who are these two witnesses and what do they represent? Are they Moses and Elijah? Are they the Old Testament church and the New Testament church? So that's where we're heading. But to give you an introduction, I believe that Revelation 10.1 clearly depicts that this divine messenger is Jesus, who is Yahweh incarnate, coming to bring this message to his people through John. With that, let's pray. Father, we know that scripture is hard to interpret, and we can only do it if given by your spirit. So, Father, we do pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, a mind to understand, a heart to believe, and your spirit to obey your holy word, that we would find eternal life in them. Father, we know that faithful brothers may disagree over these interpretations, and yet here is the truth. What matters is that we worship in the Spirit, through the Son, to the glory of God the Father. And we worship you, the Trinity in unity and the uh, we worship the Trinity in unity. And that's what matters, oh God. So help us to do so. We thank you for this glorious message that Jesus has come to make you known, and by his words we can know you. By your spirit, we can understand. 
and we are your children. We love you and we thank you for this message tonight, for this word that we have received from your holy word. May it help us marvel at the glory of Christ. May we rest in his completed works. Be with us as we go forth, O God. Pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Love you guys.